welcome to another episode of the Black and Cont Bio podcast. My name is Janae Adams and I am the host for today's episode as well as part of the team behind the Black Women in Computational Biology Network. I'm really excited to be joined today by Winfred, who is our regional representative for the Africa-Europe region of our network. And um, we are looking forward to sharing some of the conversations we've been, we've been having amongst ourselves about the importance and significance of the perspective of being an African scientist and going abroad for your training in computational biology. Uh, we're joined by Nadia and Ruth, who are two members of the network at different professional stages and transition points in studying abroad, um, either in the US or the UK uh, with roots in Africa. And uh, we'll be listening to them kind of share more of their stories and their perspectives, some unforeseen challenges and hurdles, um, how they've had to adjust, but also more importantly, where they found the resources, um, where they found funding, how they searched for these opportunities, and what was more important for them uh, to hold on to as they considered um, embarking on these journeys. Um, we're hoping that listeners get from this um, some inf- inspiration um, and a little bit of direction in terms of where to find the resources um, to achieve the goals that they'd like to achieve. Um, and also just um, a sense of connection uh, to know that uh, you're not alone if you're an international student in computational biology. Um, and so I'm really excited to just help facilitate this conversation and kind of sit back today. Um, so thank you again for tuning in. We're really excited that you're here and let's just get on with the show. Uh, Winfred, uh, feel free to give an introduction of yourself first, um, but also then what kind of motivated you to have this conversation today? All right. Uh, thank you very much, Dine, for that uh brief introduction. So my name is Winfred Gatua. I am from Kenya and I'm currently a second year PhD student at the University of Bristol. So one of the things that really motivated me to try and uh, have a discussion with Jenny and uh, coming up with the idea is to try and make sure that other young people and young scientists across Africa, they actually get the first-hand information on studying abroad, getting uh, to hear some of the challenges or the lessons that we've learned by us moving from our our native countries and getting ourselves to other continents and starting our studies there. So I think the lessons that we've learned, our experiences will cultivate an interest to other young scientists in Africa uh, to consider studying in abroad, getting the skills at hand and and probably in future, going back to their respective countries and contributing to science. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, of course. Um, so Ruth, uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Junia. I'm Ruth Nanjala from Kenya as well. I'm a first year PhD student at the University of Oxford. And yeah, and my project is uh, basically around statistical genetics. Thank you. Awesome. And Nadia? Yeah, thank you, Janaya. Uh, my name is Nadia Haredimana, and I'm from Kigali, Rwanda. And I'm currently uh, an associate computational scientist at the ICANN Medical School on Mount Sinai in New York. And uh, one of the reasons that motivated me to, to be part of this talk is because my journey to here wasn't straightforward for various reasons. But I think that I... I would have loved how to see that somebody guides me or listen to a podcast like this as I was making the decision to for my career path. And I think that I was thinking of my younger self and really thought that it would be important to for my younger self to listen to this. Uh, that's why I'm here. Awesome. Yeah. So we can also just go around and share some of your infer well your interests in computational biology so um Winfred how about you what kind of motivated you to get into bioinformatics pretty that, that's an interesting question so um 
I used to hear about bioinformatics in my undergraduate, but I didn't really understand what it was all about. However, when I started off as a postgraduate diploma intern at the Kemri Welcome Trust in Kilifi, Kenya, my project involved studying transmission dynamics of viruses in different uh, scales, so in schools and also in the community. And one of the aspects was doing a wet lab aspect and a dry lab, which I did not have any kind of skill. So that prompted me to think twice what I really want in my life as a biologist. So that's what sparked the interest to actually go deeper into understanding some of these programming languages and how I can use them to make my work easy, especially data analytics. Yeah, and how about uh, Nadia? Uh, yeah, thank you for the question. So I got into the computational biology because I've been, since I was younger, I've been interested in math uh, from high school. And when I got into college, I got, I started being interested in biology, specifically genetics. And when, at the time when I was graduating, um, graduating uh, college, that's when uh, the research I was doing at the time at the Jackson lab, uh, in Baharba, Maine, um, my PI told me that there was a field called computational biology where you can combine both math, math skills and biology interests and basically use math to answer some of the biology questions. And I think that was mind blowing at the time. So that's why like, I decided to go here just to combine my two interests and yeah, do both things that I really like. Awesome, great motivations and Ruth. Thank you, Nadia. Uh, for me, I think I had interest uh, in computational uh, sciences when I was in high school. So I had interest in medicine and computer science. But since undergraduate, uh, you're only given one option. I chose to do a course in medical science. But then uh, during my third year attachment period, I got introduced to bioinformatics and realized that uh, with bioinformatics, you can match the skills in uh, medical sciences as well as computational sciences. And that was it for me. So I got something that um, matched both my interests and that is what I decided to pursue as a career. First thing to think about would be what the education system is like and uh, what are the different pathways that one can pursue to actually get a job in comp bio. So Ruth, from your experience, do you have something to actually highlight from that? Thank you, Infred. I actually think that there are so many pathways towards getting a job in computational biology. Uh, it doesn't have to be a straight pathway. You can just do an, a BSc and get a job or do a BSc, move straight to PhD and then get a job or do a BSc and MSc and then a PhD. Um, so long as you have the skills that are required to actually do the job, I think it's possible to move from just a BSc and getting a job in computational biology. Brilliant. Uh, thank you, Ruth, for that exciting response. Uh, Nadia? Um, I think I do agree with uh, Ruth. Uh, and, and thank you also for the question. I think uh, computational biology is a field where there's no one straightforward uh, trajectory. And I think if you ask people who are in this field, they all tell you that they've studied in this field and then move there. And that's the beauty, uh, amazing, and the flexibility of the, the field. Amazing responses there. Yeah, I think, I don't know if you want personally my journey, but I would think, I would say that, yeah, it's really flexible. There's no one way or the other way to do it. And a good thing is that it can be applied to multiple fields, not just in biology, like the skill set that you get from the, the computational biology, you can apply them to other fields. And that's also another beauty of the, of the, of the, yeah, of the field. All right. Uh, definitely, I concur with what uh, Ruth and Nadia have said. Especially when I moved here, that's when I realized uh, you've a wide array of choices to actually make. So one, it's not just a straight pathway and that you don't have like one thing that is always right or perfect. You'll find someone with a BSc, gets a very good research assistant job in computational biology. Someone may be required to even do an MSc. Another one may have to go to miles of even doing a PhD. So it varies, but the good thing is that the pathway is flexible and it allows you to do sort of many things. And with a background in comp, in comp bio, it doesn't 
limit you to just being in academia. You can actually find your way to industry. Yeah, so I've seen that around with my supervisors who have transitioned from academia and now they're just working exclusively in the industry. Yeah, and all of you kind of touched upon the flexibility and how many opportunities there are in bio in general. So with that said, what was kind of your main motivation for going abroad for some of your training? So I think there are so many reasons for wanting to study abroad. But to me, my major reason was uh, my project of interest. So whatever um, I was interested in doing and the people who had expertise in those areas were mostly found abroad. So that's why I opted to do my PhD abroad. Also because I get the opportunity to network with a diverse set of people and not just people that um, I'm used to. So that was another reason for me choosing to go abroad. And also, you can we can't overlook the exceptional research facilities and state-of-the-art uh, facilities that are abroad. Yeah, as well as um, the scholarship I applied for, I am part of the African Oxford Initiative. And other than just getting the technical skills and uh, getting a PhD, you also get to be mentored and go through these leadership trainings, which I believe are important in uh, you being a great scientist here. Yeah. Yeah, really great points and things to consider. Nadia, how about you? Uh, so my my experience, my my reasoning to move here um, to go abroad was kind of different from um, um, from Ruth because I came here when I was a, a bit naive in the sense that I was in advance and I didn't know exactly what I wanted. So I moved here for college, and at the time I hadn't decided. I didn't even know what my major was gonna be. Like I wasn't sure I was going to end up in biology. So I, yeah, I was lucky to get a scholarship and move here. And I think one of the beauty of being here was that I was able to actually find my path because in Rwanda, we have a system where you do a national exam and then from your marks from the national exam, then you are given a specific uh, field that you're going to study. And at the time I was given architecture because I was, yeah, my math skill, my math uh, score was higher and I, I could have done it and I'll be good at it. But I didn't know that's what, you know, it's like I didn't know that that's not actually what my interest was. So being here really, uh, like Ruth says, it was the networking, the ability to do research, even if you're an undergrad, being exposed to grad student, being exposed to postdoc, and that I could I could picture my how my life will look like how, if I choose this specific path. Um, so yeah, that was one, I think, yeah, the being to the place at the right time, I would say. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point that you highlighted about your training path is that in the U.S., um, we have, you know, certain types of entrance, entrance exams or exit exams at different educational levels, but they don't necessarily determine what um, kind of your schooling system is going to allow you to study, per se, not necessarily. So, um, yeah, definitely a big difference in um, lots to consider. How about you, Winfred? Why? Why did you decide to um, leave for your PhD? Uh, thank you very much uh, for that good question. So a couple of things, uh, but definitely I think they just overlay or it's an overlap with uh, what Ruth has basically shared. So one of my motivating factor was actually my research interests and the course that I really wanted to pursue and um, a number of um, biotechnological techniques that I wanted to learn. So that's why I chose specifically University of Bristol because this set of methods are actually developed within this department. So I knew I will get the right mentorship to actually understand the core concepts. And if I need to expand on those methods, then I'm just at the right place. Uh, besides that, funding, my PhD in Kenya, that's a nightmare. So it's very expensive. So definitely I was also looking for scholarships, which mostly in the country, they are very, very limited. And so that's another reason as to why I also left. And uh, besides that, definitely access to infrastructure, resources, because 
with a scholarship, you already have like research costs. So you can use that money even to buy access to data, which is not very easy from Kenya. So yeah, some those are some of the reasons that led me to come here. Yeah, and it's really great that both you and Ruth shared um, the opportunity to find scholarships as kind of being part of the main um, ways to fund your current path. Um, so we'll definitely circle back to that later. Um, I guess since since you each are in different stages and stages of transition in your career stage, um, I know Nadia, so you finish your master's, now you're working as a full-time scientist. Um, Winfred, you just started the PhD, well, in your early years, and, and Ruth um, now has a new posting uh, for graduate studies. What kind of right now is at the forefront of your mind? Uh, what are some uh, things that may have been surprising to you that you weren't expecting at this time? Or um, some, some yeah, just unexpected challenges that you would uh, want to share um, with people who might be looking to fill your shoes? Thank you, Jamea. Uh, <laughs> um, so I've been here for a month. I haven't um, met a lot of unexpected hurdles or, yeah, maybe just one that I would pinpoint is um, transport because my institute is uh, very far away from where I stay. So one of the challenges has to be uh, to get to get there on time. And the buses here take a lot of time because of, you know, the waiting time and then there's traffic. Yeah. So I think what I'd advise anyone coming to the UK or Europe, or I don't know if they, this applies to the US, but um, better pre be prepared to get a bicycle. If you don't know how to ride one, <laughs> better start learning. Because I think once you have a bicycle, it is easy to move around uh, the UK and Europe as well. Yeah, so that has been my only challenge so far. Um, okay, uh, for me, I would share my challenges specifically in my graduate school. Uh, education. Uh, so for me, one thing that was a bit surprising that I wasn't ready for was the availability of funding, in, uh, internal funding and also external funding. So uh, I'm, I'm an international student currently on a, a student visa. And I didn't, I guess I wasn't ready to find that most of the funding that I was, I could apply to, that I wanted to apply to, I wasn't eligible for because I, they were only for citizen or people with um permanent resident and that really was a hurdle and any step that I wanted to take uh, so it really kind of like um, I don't uh, yeah it kind of like you know discouraged me in a bit but also at the same time like it's made me realize that if I would you know it's like me choosing a lab at the moment was going to be a lab that could uh, you know could fund me even if that wouldn't be the lab that I really wanted but it's more about like where can I be funded to do the research I want? And, and I think that's something that um, many international students aren't, uh, in the US specifically, um, in, uh, aren't prepared for or aren't taught when you're going through interview, things like that. Like we don't think about apply, uh, like thinking about because you think that, oh, funding is there as long as I get it. So I would, yeah, that was my um yeah my hurdle I would say in grad school and my grad education. All right, I think I'm next. So I think I'll share two because I've been here for one year. So I think I may have just an extra one to share. So one thing for me, I came in when uh, we had all these issues of quarantine. So I spent ten days in isolation which led me to having a very serious homesick, just feeling the urge to go back. <laughs> so it was not very easy transitioning. And yeah, so I ended up just having that urge to try and go back home. But this one was no a point of return. But one of the things that I realized was very important is um, network and avail myself to actually join some of the community groups. So. If you are a spiritual person, join a church when you come here or join a group that interests you, join a cycling club, a football club, it will help you because 
most of the time you just move alone and know with your family and that can form to the members of those communities can actually become part of your family and they can help help you relieve uh, the homesick and everything else. Uh, then I think the other surprising thing uh, is finding an accommodation because I needed to move from my year one in my second year. I wanted to live in uh, rather isolated properties, not associated with the university. So finding an accommodation is not very easy and you have to do it very, very timely. Otherwise you may end up spending time in the hotels and bothering everyone in the department to find you an accommodation. And besides that, in Kenya, you're used to, oh, you can just walk in and the landlord gives you a house and you just open. But in this case, you spend a couple of months. In UK, specifically at the moment, they ask for UK guarantors. So whoever becomes your guarantor is a UK-based person. And besides that, you're sharing a house with strangers. So just allow yourself to go along. You're used to living alone in Kenya. Leave that at the airport. Once you get here, you're going to live with totally different people and accommodate different personalities. Yeah. Yeah, so there are a lot of topics that we just uncovered there. Um, I definitely want to circle back to the funding issue that you talked about, Nadia. Um, but while we're here and I'm just talking about major differences between countries and at least focusing on cultural differences, I mean, what's been um, a cultural difference that you've had to kind of like work around or learn um, as you've kind of transitioned into your new um, your new work postings? Um, the other day, one friend and I were just talking about um, the importance of intercultural communication and how that comes up so much in the work that we do, uh, but can definitely be challenging. And um, yeah, so I just wanted to get some more of your perspectives on that. So um, what are some other like cultural differences that um, that you've experienced? We can start with Ruth. Wow, Jimia, I think we'll have to <laughs> reverse our circle so that I don't have to start always. Yeah, but um, maybe another culture shock for me was, was food. The food here is totally different from what we have at home. And it was my first time to travel to the UK. So it was a bit of hard work and trying to adjust and trying to find African shops around and all that. But I did find some after a while. But yeah, that was a challenge for me in the beginning. Nadia, how about you? Yeah, uh, some of the culture shock I think I'm still having is the the small talk uh, I think that was uh, a really high it's still hard for me so when I moved here people would say hi like how are you and I think they wanted to know how I am so I'll you know stand there and start telling them about my day about my morning and I didn't realize that you just have to say I'm good and then just keep going and so that was a bit something I'm still trying to learn and another thing that um that was also like culture shock for me it was uh it was uh the uh, when I'm when I was presenting like in a, in a lab meeting or a work, uh, getting feedback that are very positive, like from uh, my education was the feedback was always like oh you didn't do a good job. It's like more like that, but it's not like it's like getting gi being given the hard love all the time. Or it's like oh they're gonna push you, be break you because they want you to be uh, to be stronger. But also being somebody tell you okay this is a good start or. If you send a draft to your mentor, I'd be like, okay, this is not good, but it's a good start. Like hearing those words was also a culture shock for me because I, I didn't know how to interpret this. I didn't know if it was just pity, you know, because English wasn't my first language. I was like, okay, is my English that bad that I have to be pitied all the time? Or actually, am I doing something? Like trying to navigate like the words and what they mean, you know, and translate them in my, you know, my, you know, my language to just, so that's something that is a bit culture shocking. And I do agree with you, Ruth. Uh, yeah, the food was also a big challenge, but I'm glad that I'm now in New York where I'm exposed to so many food. So that's a plus. Yes, lots of good points. Uh, Winfred, I, I know you've shared some already, but um, anything else to add? Uh, nothing really. I just agree with what my colleagues have said, especially food. But yeah, finally I was able to find 
uh, more or less a specific area that is just known to sell just African-based products. So I stick to that. Otherwise, yeah, it was very challenging in the beginning. Yeah, so um, how do you think your new postings or kind of your new areas might define computational biology or a train or focus on CompBio in different ways? Um, I think this is just something that I, I was just thinking about is that oftentimes we study or we see um, community-based initiatives in science really focused on um, issues that affect our communities. Um, so I think one thing that I observed that's really great um, from lots of African scientists is that there's often a, a focus on like viral genomics or different like infectious disease or different community based um, like uh, things that are emergent health and um, like quality of life um, questions for African scientists to, to tackle. Um, do you feel like you're still able to answer similar questions where you are? Um, and kind of like how is um, your your comp bio training still allowing you to 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 address those issues? So uh, basically, based on the training that I've received so far, and what I actually anticipate to learn in future, the training is good enough, and also the skills are good enough in my field of study, based on the fact that. Um, non-communicable diseases are actually understand it in Africa. So talk of cerebrovascular disease, coronary artery disease. So such uh, people don't actually pay attention to them, including cancer. However, I believe through the training that I'm going through, I'll be able to gain the skills that are actually required to go back in Kenya, get those human genomes specifically for Kenyans and other Africans, try to understand some of the mechanisms through which uh, these non-communicable diseases develop. Yeah, uh, Nadia, then Ruth. Yeah, uh, thank you so much, Ine, for this question. Uh, it's, it's something that has been bothered me at the beginning of my training and I'm really glad that uh, you asked me this question and I can I'm able to answer it here so I remember when I was doing uh, in my graduate education and I was choosing labs and I was only interested in infectious diseases lab because I felt like that would that would the training would make me more marketable back home because I was looking at all the institution the consortium that were being created like the CDC and in Africa other places were mostly focused on infectious disease which makes Sense because at the time that's what uh, you know most of the majority countries in the continent were facing, but I think that but unfortunately I wasn't able to join those labs for the, the reasons that I mentioned above. But now that I'm um, working, uh, I've been working in genomic research, more focused on Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases. I've found my way through networking, through reading papers, through really talking to other people to see how can I, how like, can I use this training and and then be still, my skill set that I'm getting here to be useful back home. And I realized that now it wasn't because those diseases weren't like you know, like Winfrey said, the non-communicable diseases weren't uh, affecting different individuals or in uh, African countries. It's because there were most of them underdiagnosed, or their you know the the interest in healthcare were kind of like focused on specific places. And I think right now, where I'm at right now, I see different. Uh, people, a PI and faculty coming, giving talk and working on, you know, breast cancer, working on heart diseases and even Alzheimer's disease. So that really made me feel good, you know, that I am actually doing the right thing. I'm, you know, I'm training myself to be still useful to like, you know, uh, if I go back home and still like my skill set that I'm going here, I know just gonna stay here, but also gonna be transferable. Yeah, uh, thank you, Junior. So I am interested in like uh, looking at the human leukocyte antigen region. And uh, with this HLA region, we have less studies happening in Africa. And we also lack like a HLA typing lab where we can maybe type them and then look at how they are associated to immune complex traits. So I believe that my study here um, would help me gain the skills that uh, would be necessary to towards advancing this kind of research back in Africa. 
And actually right now I'm working on an African data set from the malaria genomics and also from the Gambian uh, people. So I believe yeah, this would be useful for uh, future research work in Africa. Yeah, and thank you so much to each of you for, for sharing that perspective. I think um, basically what we've gathered is that, you, you know, even though you might be in a new environment where you may not be able to focus on that specific research topic, um, even if you are, no matter what type of training that you're getting, you'll be able to apply, I mean, just given the nature of CompBio, you'll probably be able to apply your skills to many areas. So it's really great to hear um, that you're, each of you are interested in still making an impact on your communities at home with the work that you're doing and the training that you're getting. Um, so we'll definitely come back to that in just a second. Um, I know people listening are really going to be interested in um, general tips. Um, so we'll also get to that in just a moment. Um, but speaking of kind of returning home, if that's an, of interest to either of you, um, what is kind of, what is something that you would want um, people to know about the importance of retaining African scientists? And maybe Winfred can start and, and give a little bit more context since um, this is something that she is um, excited about. Um, so like, yeah, Winfred, we, we started talking the other day about um, capacity building in Africa. Um, what's the importance of African scientists being able to return back and uh, uh, work in CompBio and, and make an impact? Yeah, it, it's an interesting topic and something that's, that's always running in my mind, even as I pursue my studies here. And um, yeah, there is always this discussion around brain drain, whereby definitely most people will try to invest and support capacity building. But there is a missing point when it comes to funding. We don't have the infrastructure in place. So what happens is that someone is trained, for instance, in masters in bioinformatics, but they've nowhere to get a job from or to even do the actual research. So what happens is that most of these people will just look for opportunities abroad. And so you'll find a whole court is gone in different continents while the aim of the funding when they set out was actually to train and retain. So we are still missing that component of retaining. And I, I think my advice would be one, the government, our own uh, African government should be ready to spare some money to actually ensure that we have active research that's going on. Uh, besides that, they should also allow um, an avenue for biotech startups because at the moment you already know only like about 2% of human genome that actually comes from Africa. But if they can give a, an opportunity to startups and just give them the funding that is required and make sure that data is retained within African continent, that would be a good startup because people will be willing to come back and they don't have to pay to access that data rather than you're retained in Kenya, then you have to pay to access Kenyan genome that is in Welcome Sanga Institute. Yeah, I don't. I just find it a bit, a little bit weird. So I think those are some of the areas that I think we can improve on. Yeah, absolutely, Winfred. Thank you so much for that. And uh, I know Nadia, what would it take for you to to be able to go home and have the in infrastructure um, to continue working as a computational biologist? Okay, uh, thank you for that question, uh, Janaya. And I definitely agree with everything that Winfred said. And I think. My ability to do go home will be those uh, questions be addressed. But something that I've been really, really interested in and was to uh, create, like, do a consortium that is like a pan African biobank, like where we there's sequence data, genetic data, microarray data, where all the genetic data from different ethnic groups or tribes in Africa that are retrained. Like, we have an example of the UK biobank. This has been successful where families have entered, you know, um, a, a whole, you know, consortium and now they are followed. And I think that is something that has inspired me. And one of the reasons it has inspired me is because we know currently there's only 2% of the, like Winfrey said, the African uh, genome that is represented in human genetics, which definitely is sad because we know that it's the most diverse um, uh 
gen uh, has the most genetic uh, diversity. So I think that's um, for me, like it would be something that I can see myself doing. And I think that the training that I'm getting here is preparing me to kind of, you know, not be like star, but work in that sector where we have a running biobank for different non-communicable diseases. And I think it will be not only useful to just the researcher, but also for the medical institute where, you know, they present this the case studies and also for genetic counselors. And I think having that will only help this the training the student, but it's it's searching different sector in healthcare. And I think that uh it's something that I would love to see, you know, and I would love to be part of, you know, if I go back home. Yeah. Absolutely. Ruth, how about you? Yeah, uh, I'd just like to back what my colleagues have mentioned and also to just talk about, um, so I have been part of the History Africa Consortium meeting for the last two years and the work they are doing in uh, building um, uh, capacity of genomics research in Africa is really great. So uh, what I have in mind is maybe if we could have uh, more communities like uh, History Africa being built back in Africa, I think that would be uh, really great. Um, so like currently History Africa funding is over, but we have uh, they have a new uh, grant, which is called Data Science in Africa, which, is th which I think is really important in uh, building up or in making sense of the genomics data in Africa. So yeah, I, I'd say uh, getting more communities like uh, Data Science in Africa or History Africa would also be another thing that we would consider. Yeah, so it definitely seems like a lot of the common themes are the training capacity, um, funding, and um, but also more importantly for that funding to be um, distributed in a way where the communities are in charge of it and the scientists can actually make good use of it. Um, um, there's, yeah, there, there's a lot that we could discuss, I'm sure. Um, and I know that many efforts are being made in that. Um, but I think it's also important for our listeners who would be interested or maybe worried about um, leaving, the, leaving the continent and not being able to come back. Um, I think it's inspiring to hear that each of you are looking for ways or thinking about ways um, to support your communities um, to kind of be the best scientists that they can be at home, which is important. Um, so finally, for our last segments, um, I know many of the listeners will be interested in hearing about different tips and tricks um, for your journeys. Um, uh, each of you have mentioned either funding sources or scholarships that you've gotten. Um, so I guess the first question can just be, where did you guys find the resources to study um, where you're currently studying? Was it a, a particular website? Was it through mentoring? Um, I know Nadia, you've been in the U.S. Um, a little longer, but um, and there are different challenges there. Um, but but uh, Ruth, where did you first find about the um, the the scholarship that you have? Uh, thank you, Jenea. Uh, so I'm I'm actually on three scholarships. Uh, so I have the African Oxford Initiative, Clarendon Award, and as well as a Kennedy Trust uh, Scholarship. How I found out about this was, um, so in 2020, I was presenting a, a poster at the American Society for Human Genetics Conference. And um, I had one of the uh, people who had attended uh, reach, uh, reach out to me about my uh, presentation. And that person happens to be my current supervisor. So yeah, we started communication way back in 2020 and continued. And uh, I learned about the scholarship uh, through her. So she mentioned that there's this uh, uh, AFOX Kennedy Trust Prize Studentship. So AFOX is African Oxford Initiative uh, that is uh, going to be advertised. And that's how I applied for it. Uh, and I applied specifically for a particular project, so I didn't I didn't like to just apply to the University of Oxford. No, I just apl I applied uh, to the project of interest that I had in mind. And also I applied to work specifically with that supervisor. So yeah, that was the path for me. And that was how I was able to uh, secure my scholarship. 
and this Clarendon scholarship came afterwards, uh, like after I had uh, secured the AFOX and Kennedy Trust Prize studentship. So it was like just um, a top up to what I had uh, previously. But I think most of these scholarships can be accessed online. Uh, I had a Winfred uh, among my many colleagues who helped me to uh, get them. So uh, websites like findaphd.com and also through mentors. So I have several mentors both in Africa and outside Africa. So I think they are also useful in uh, helping you access this scholarship and preparing um, uh, application materials and also uh, doing mock interviews. Yeah, I, I think if you have the right mentors, then you're in the right place to secure such opportunities. Yeah, so in your case, it was really helpful to be able to get to a conference and not only present your work, but get connected to people who might be able yeah. to um, get you opportunities, which is really great to hear. And um, it, sometimes it just takes, you know, one person to believe in you and kind of get the ball rolling and um, invest in you. So that's really great to hear. Um, Nadia, how about you? Uh for me, I guess, uh, yes, uh, when I came here on a scholarship, but I was uh, in undergrad, and the way I got a scholarship was uh, uh, the high school that I went to. It was an American high school in Rwanda, and uh, kind of it was the connection because uh, the professors and uh, uh, the counselor was uh, from the United States and had family, the familiarity of the uh, the schools here. So through that connection and networking, I was able to secure a scholarship to come to the US. Uh, but one thing that I would say with that, what I think I learned now that I'm more mature from that was talking and networking with people and basically telling, even if you're not sure what you want, but kind of like get guidance of people that might have had more experience than you. So that's one of the advice I would say. And um, for the graduate studies, so I think Jenna, you know that in the US is different where you, when you're accepting the program, you will have like at least two years where the school is actually funding you and then you choose a thesis lab. And then, so that's a bit different as opposed to like apply for a specific scholarship and then you get into the school. They have those grants, but again, I wasn't eligible for those grants. Uh, but one thing that I would say people for international student i know that um the microsoft research has a grant and uh, that international students are eligible for it's good for people when computational biology because it has a you have to have a, like a machine learning or like some uh, it has a machine learning and ai focused and i think that if you can make your thesis fit in that i apply to that and uh, Unlike I didn't get it, but I would say that I do know people who are international students that didn't get it. So I would advise that. And, and also the HMMI, if I'm sounding correctly, I don't remember what it stands for, but also know that um, that takes international students. And I think the other uh, general uh, scholarships available for all international students uh, is the Fulbright. And that, that also has... Um, I think uh, some string that you have to go back to your country, but it's also available. So I think uh, people should give it a shot. And I know people who have gotten it and, and it's great. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so thank you for highlighting um, in the U.S., um, it is definitely a little bit more difficult for international students to get all types of funding and fellowships, especially after their first years, first two years of the PhD where your program is mainly funding you. Um, but thank you for highlighting, um, you know, the, the Microsoft Fellowship, the HHMI, um, Fulbright, those are all great ones. And another popular one that um, is specifically for what, what they refer to as new Americans, um, immigrants of any kind, international students, is the P.D. Soros Fellowship. Um, I know at least one or two people who have applied to that, and I think one person who, who's gotten it. Um, so definitely look out for those opportunities. Once, you do, If you do come to the U.S., um, there is support. It just may not necessarily be from government funding. Um, yeah. So thank you for that, Nadia. And Winfred, how about you? Where did you find out um, where to get your scholarships? So um, basically, ideally, I think I just took a um, more closely related path to Ruth. So basically, I found mine on finder.com. So finderphd.com. 
but also to highlight there is also a findermasters.com. So if someone is interested in actually finding a master's scholarship, so one can visit that site. And uh, besides what Nadia and Ruth have already discussed, I think I would like to mention as well, uh, someone can actually set up, you can do a search on LinkedIn and just sign up to get the updates whenever you've these PhD adverts going live and one always get a reminder via email. Uh, besides that, I would recommend Twitter and just follow the right people. You will actually get the right tweet uh, feeds rather than getting things on politics. You can actually follow a specific group of scientists that you're interested in their work. And most of the time you will actually see them uh, tweet these opportunities. Uh, besides that, I would mention definitely your colleagues. So Ruth and my colleagues uh, that we studied with, they were very important. So discussing these opportunities and just uh, sharing amongst ourselves, like I am applying for this. Can I get some feedback from you and everything else? So it really worked out. So don't be an island, actually work, just network and it should be easy. Yeah. Because um, I think a lot of that kind of ties into what we're doing with the network, particularly in Twitter and particularly just having and promoting more open frameworks for getting into the computational biology field. So just, yeah, sharing with your friends what you're doing, asking for feedback, creating communication channels for people to do that. But also with Twitter, that's why it's so important to us. And that's why hopefully if it sticks around, uh, we'll, we'll continue to share opportunities and retweet and kind of really use that as a platform because I know that a lot of people look to it um, not only just to get information, but to follow, like you said, the right people uh, and feel more engaged in the science. And I think that's something that um, we can do as international you know, partners and collaborators to really support um, our other members of the network, but also people in our communities. Um, yeah, so thank you for all of that. And uh, for those listening, I'll make sure that links to um, web pages like findaphd and findamasters.com, as well as the other fellowships like the Microsoft Research or the Fulbright, all of that will be uh, linked in the description probably of this episode or show notes or something like that. Um, so thank you um, for, for sharing those. And if you have any questions, uh, definitely feel free to reach out to our podcast panelists today. Um, Winfred, anything else to add before we um, kind of transition into our final question here? Uh, nothing really. Okay. Just excited about the responses. Yeah. I think I should have gotten that advice before I transitioned here. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that is kind of the question. The final question for everyone is one piece of advice you would give to yourself maybe a year ago or or someone who who's looking to be in your shoes. What's that last tip, um, the last parting words you would give to someone? Okay. <laughs> uh, thank you for that question. I think... Um, one thing that I would give myself a year ago, two years ago, is that uh, I think there is people, uh, when they hear the word computational biology, uh, it kind of scares them away. It's like, oh, my God, I, you know, the, I think it's more of like, you know, people who are like computer savvy. And I think it's a field that you have to have a gift you know, I think some people are really scared, not something that you can learn as you go, but something I'll give myself I, an advice and to a year ago and to other people is that you learn as you go, as long as you want, you are passionate about it or you like it. It's not something that you might not, you, you have to learn since undergrad or since high school, it's something that you can pick up at any time. And uh, at any time of, um, you know, your life. And I think that, you know, don't be scared of, um, of the, the, the word computational biology and all the skill set that your peers might have, you might also get those, those skill set. You might also actually have them just because you haven't put yourself out there and, you know, and, you know, ad, you know, work in that field, but you actually do have them. And even if it's, let's say, uploading a file to R, that's a skill set already. So I would say that don't, don't be scared and or shy because I was that person. Absolutely, Nadia. Thank you. Uh, Ruth, then Winfred. Yeah, uh, sure. Thank you, Junior. I think one thing I would say is believe in yourself. 
I think that is one thing that most of us <laughs> have a problem with. We tend to uh, allow imposter syndrome to take hold of our lives. So I think just believing in yourself and you'll be able to accomplish whatever thing you want to accomplish in your life. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Winfred? I think one thing is uh, just something that seems like a hurdle or something that can hinder someone from pursuing their further education. So you do not need to break a bank for you to study abroad. Yes, it's expensive, but ideally you can get all forms of financial assistance. So the advice is if someone is pursuing a BSc or a master's, it's good you post good GPAs because they are used to actually determine whether you, you get the scholarship. You need to master the skill and shape the interests that you really want to pursue. And that should be able to put everyone at a position to actually get a scholarship and just study for free without having to be worried that your parents have to sell a piece of land somewhere. Yeah. One thing, I guess my last parting words would just be if you are a Black woman in computational biology, um, definitely join our network and get connected to these amazing speakers, but also um, a group of about 200 more um, who are willing to share experiences, willing to share stories, resources um, to help you um, no matter where you are in your journey. Um, but finally, thank you to each of our panelists and speakers today giving a round of applause. Um, each of you really gave some insightful um, advice, um, some well-communicated tips, and and I really appreciate you just being honest and open with our listeners and, and each, of, each, of, each of us here today. So thank you for that. Um, if that's all for the day, uh, we will see you all um, in our next podcast episode. Today's episode was hosted by Woodford Katua and Janae Adams, who both produced the content uh, for the interviews today. The Black Women in Computational Biology Network is a global community of Black women scientists advancing biology through a computational lens. With over 200 members from four continents, we increase opportunities for collaboration, professional development, and science communication to change the face of integrative biosciences across the globe. The Black and Count Bio series highlights Black scientists from a variety of professional backgrounds and their stories. Thank you for listening to this one. If you'd like to learn more about the Black Women in Computational Biology Network, visit us at blackwomencompbio.org or follow us on Twitter, if it's still around, at blkwomencompbio. You can also donate to support us as we are a community-run organization at tinyurl.com forward slash bwcb dash donate and all of the contact information for our wonderful speakers today is also linked in the notes below and thank you again to our speakers and thank you for tuning in